Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We could do a three-hour special today on what's going on at City Hall right now, and we would not get to everything. Between budget talks and things within the budget and... Today, you know, we're not even going to get to this one, I don't think, today. A big discussion on a motion about what to do about consultants because that's a a big issue in this city. Probably won't get to that one, but I want to bring in John Best. He is the publisher of the Bay Observer, regular here on the show. Love having him on. John, how are you today? Just great, Scott. How are you? I am terrific, and as I say, I'm not going to dilly-dally too long here to to get started because there are so many things, and I want to start with something you've written at the Bay Observer uh, that dealt with a meeting yesterday around the LRT, our favorite three letters, everyone in this city, nothing brings them the kind of joy that hearing those three letters does. I know, uh, still trying the council, still trying to figure out who is going to operate the LRT. They were trying to deal with that yesterday and then all of a sudden not. Yeah, that's right. They, they listened to delegates for almost four hours and then there was a bit of discussion about uh, where do they go from here and uh, Mayor Horvath jumped in uh, right at well it ended up being the end because she ended the meeting Uh, she said uh, you know this is a pretty important discussion we should uh, have the entire council discuss it and uh, so she recommended that they put it off until March which I presume is because they want to get through all the budget stuff that's uh, been, uh, you know, sort of partially underway. So, they're, you know, it's going to go in front of a general issues committee in March. And uh, uh, as I said in the story, I think all the delegates will be back. The, the three members of the Amalgamated Transit Union, all the poverty groups in the city. Uh, I'm not sure why they're weighing in on that particular issue, but... Uh, they're certainly entitled to do so. And uh, so everybody will be back in March and we'll hear it all over again and then we'll see what happens. I mean, look, this is an issue that lots of people have lots of opinions on, whether it should be a public-private partnership that runs it, whether it's a private company, whether it's the HSR, the union, the and everyone's got their opinion on this. I just, John, I, I am amazed at, it's a twofold thing, that are the same. I'm amazed that we still haven't got anything really started on this and that we still are trying to discuss who's going to operate and all that kind of stuff without having any clue of what it's going to cost to operate this thing. That would seem to be an important part of this discussion, no? Well, it it would be in any community other than Hamilton where there's kind of a, a an LRT version of tulip fever where the facts simply don't <laughs> matter. Rationality uh, doesn't matter. Uh, even the transit benefits of the system are really don't matter. Uh, it's all about getting that train. And uh, so, uh, I mean, uh, really yesterday's meeting in, in many ways was absolutely ridiculous. Uh, the The issue of who's going to uh, operate and maintain the the system is so far down the road uh, and and so uncertain as to actually when it might happen that, you know, if if the kind of foresight that's going into deciding who's going to operate and maintain it went into the decision to do it in the first place, uh, we might have come up with a different answer. You know what? But yes, but I wrote a story a while back, a column a while back that pointed out what it's costing the Toronto LRTs that are about to open, the Finch one and the Eglinton West. And 
for the Finch one, which is double the length of Hamilton, they've said it's going to be about $110 million a year. So uh, for our length of LRT, say 52, 53 million. We've been told here in Hamilton as low as 6.4 million. Now I don't believe that number for a second, but if we all of a sudden, John, are going to get a bill down the road saying that actually instead of 6.4, it's 53 million, surely that's going to impact what we decide we want to do with who's going to operate, no? Well, my fear is that we won't get that number until after we've uh, committed to the system and uh, we'll be at a point of no return. I used to think that we would get a a sense of the cost of uh, the operating and maintenance. And uh, we were always told, uh, although they've stopped telling us that for a few years now, but uh, at one time there was a general sense that, that we would get a look at the operating and maintenance cost, and that would be the final decision point for council. You don't hear that anymore, and and given you know the track record of cost overruns and uncontrollable uh, events, uh, it's hard to understand how anybody could predict in advance what the cost of the operating and maintenance uh, will be. So I'm I'm somewhat uh, discouraged that 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 moment will ever occur, hmm. and. Uh, as a result, I think we're going to kind of drift into this. If if it happens, uh, there, there's some real question, I think, as to whether the commitment is really there or not. But uh, assuming it does go ahead, I have a feeling that uh, the operating and maintenance piece will just drift into it. We'll get the number after it's too late to do anything about it. Uh, we got to go. But I, your point about whether it actually happens, I know that... M- it seems like that would be ludicrous that at this point it wouldn't. But John, I I don't believe for one moment that the 3.2 or $3.4 billion cost, which was the last capital cost to build this thing before inflation, everything, I don't believe that's remotely accurate anymore. And if since the province and feds have said they are going to fund it, I, I, it, it doesn't, it wouldn't absolutely shock me if all of a sudden they said, yeah, we, we're not going up to five or six. We can't do that. I, I don't know what that means, whether we go down to a two kilometer long LRT or it doesn't happen, but uh, I think there are real questions. No doubt about it, uh, Scott. Uh, like the, the chance of this not running into a cost overrun, I think is just about zero at this point. And a Metrolinx executive was speaking to a construction group in Hamilton last week, and he essentially confirmed that. John, we saw something, and you've written about this in the Bay Observer. We have seen in the last number of weeks and months, well, let me even go back further than that. Everybody in this city understands we've got a housing problem. We've got a shortage of housing. We need every available housing unit. And yet it seems, John, as though time and again, someone is coming up with an idea for a housing project only to be shot down by something at City Hall. We've seen it three or four times now where building projects are being rejected for reasons. It doesn't make any sense to me. No, it doesn't. And I think I think what's happening, Scott, is we're having trouble coming to grips with the fact that the, the whole zoning uh, uh, permitting process for building houses is, is really undergoing a, a complete sea change. So, you know, you get neighborhood groups doing what neighborhood groups have done for forever, you know, protesting projects and um, suggesting that they they don't fit in with the character of the neighborhood and so on. 
at a time when both Ottawa and Queen's Park have made it absolutely clear we're hell-bent for election here on, on building houses. And uh, they're doing everything in their power to provide both carrot and stick uh, against communities uh, to get them to uh, build more houses. And it's further complicated by the fact that the market isn't very good right now. And it's the private sector that's building probably 95% of any houses that get built. And in some cases, uh, either the interest rates are too high, they can't get labor. Um, people are have stopped looking for houses because they feel they can't afford them. So, yeah, we, we've got a lot of problems here, but then there's some unforced errors as well. The the one that jumps to mind is the Vranich proposal yes. to put a literally a free, deeply affordable housing tower uh, in the very part of Hamilton where people were so badly displaced for LRT, and uh, he's running into static at, uh, at you know both from uh, councillors and but also from the bureaucracy. And, uh, and for a lot ridiculous. of silly and for a lot of things that I think people look at and go like, give your head a shake. Like one of the things was, as I read a shortage of trees and it was like, okay, really? We, you can't build something and then figure out the details later, get the things built, please. Well, or, or even talk about it because, uh, the proponents, um, for Vranich made a very clear, look, these are preliminary designs. Let's, uh, you know, if there's issues, let's sit down and talk about them. And uh, just, uh, you know, uh, absolutely blocked. They got a very cold reception when they when they appeared before the uh, Hamilton Community Housing, who, who should have been shown a little more interest in my view. But then within nine days, they got in front of the Committee of Adjustment and, and, and it was clear that, that some work had been done behind the scenes. There was a hastily got together petition by some of the neighbors, uh, uh, staff had produced a report that said it should be rejected because of setbacks and parking and other issues. It was clear that there'd been some work done to uh, nip this project in the bud. Well, and then the more recent one. So we've had that one a few months, maybe, or yeah, I guess a few months before that up on, uh, in Stony Creek, uh, there was one with 1,346 residential units that's been delayed and sent to the Ontario Land Tribunal. Uh, this week, we've learned that, uh, Philpott Church that's been sold and is supposed to be knocked down to make way for at least two towers. Now the Heritage Committee wants to designate it a heritage building, so it can't be knocked down. And again, it's like, John, I just, if we're serious about saying we have a housing shortage, you would think we would be bending over backwards in every way possible whenever someone wants to build housing units to say, yeah, do it. We'll figure out the details later. Just do it. But we're not. No, we're not. Uh, you know, I, I think it, it, there's a mindset issue. And instead of looking for ways of saying no, we got to start looking for ways of saying yes. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and it doesn't mean that that every planning concept gets thrown out the window. But, you know, it, I, I look at, we've always seen these comparisons to World War II. And, uh, you know, when we had an extreme housing shortage, and if, you know, I, I look at my former neighborhood in Ward 3, uh, half the houses have two front doors, and and the reason they do is because sometime during the housing shortage of, uh, you know, 70, 80 years ago, um, there was fast tracking of, of turning the upper floor into a separate apartment. 
and and uh, units were built on the back. Every one of those houses along, you know, Melrose, Balsam, all those streets, they all have additions at the back. Uh, that was all done in response to uh, a housing shortage that had to be met. And uh, right now we seem to be, you know, we're sort of mentally we're acknowledging we have a housing shortage and it, it's really bad. But we're still uh, going through these old planning motions that uh, certainly the provincial government have made very clear that, uh, you know, we'll take you to the Ontario Land Tribunal and you're probably going to lose 85% of these uh, cases. Uh, yeah, I, I, it, it seems to me that somehow, some way, I'm not sure how this happens. I'm not sure who makes the call or whatever, but it, it we need to grease the skids to make it easier rather than throwing up road, roadblocks. And, and it seems there's always roadblocks. Well, in Stony Creek, uh, there's a proposal to build affordable housing on a former uh, city-owned parking lot, and that's being opposed on the ground so that it's a well-used parking lot. Uh, you know, I don't think that's going to fly uh, when it gets to the OLT, if it ever gets there. No, and uh, we had we had one in the Strathcona neighborhood, as I recall, near Dundurn, where the building was too tall, and the neighbor said it was going to cause you know darkness and shadows. And look, I get, I I understand if I'm a neighbor, I don't want to have a thirty story building built next door. I understand. But somehow we've got to have somebody somewhere at City Hall saying, okay, here's what you can do now. Anyone want to jump in and do it? We'll be out of your way. Let's make it happen. Well, and the lack of coordination between the three governments is really appalling. I mean, here, one of the reasons we're having this problem is because the government at the top of the pile was allowing all kinds of people into the country, which for generations has been something that everybody viewed as a positive thing. But, you know, you have to plan for how you're going to house these people. It wasn't done. And, uh, you know, now they're they're cutting back on student visas. But, uh, you know, the horse is out of the barn, I think. Uh, we have a, a terrible shortage and you're not going to fix it with uh, canceling student visas. Uh, we could do, as I said, we could do three hours with John today because of all the stuff we, there, we have not scratched the tip. That's a, that's a mis mixed metaphor. Scratch the tip of the iceberg. You know what I mean? We, there is, there is <laughs> yeah. a lot we could get into today and we will, uh, we will do it soon. Uh, John Best from the Bay Observer. Uh, you can go read a bunch of his stuff on these very topics and others. Uh, John, always appreciate it. Thank you. Glad to be with you. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. I saw a tweet the other day. I don't know who posted it. I don't know the person. I don't follow them. I don't even know how it came across my feed, but I saw this. And as I was reading it, I got to admit part of it really resonated with me because I was nodding saying, yeah, this same thing refers to me. Maybe to you too. Let me read you this tweet. It says, I was in elementary school in the seventies. My experience did not know one autistic child. No one had a gluten allergy. No one had peanut allergies. No one had milk allergies. No one was bouncing off the walls with ADD or ADHD. No one had autoimmune disease at that age, and there were no inhalers on the playground. All right, I'm looking down this list, and I'm thinking, yeah, we used to take peanut butter sandwiches to school, and I don't remember ever hearing the word gluten <laughs> at that age, and on and on and on. What has happened? It has something changed that our kids are now more susceptible to these things, or is it simply our awareness 
of these things. Let's bring in Dr. Jason Perfetto. He is Director of Family Medicine and the Chair of Clinical Skills and MD Admissions at McMaster University. Doctor, thanks for this today. My pleasure. Happy to be on again. Listen, I, I, I went through this list, and thank you for coming on again. Uh, I went through this list, and it really did resonate with me because this is kind of what I never saw in school back when I was in school in the 70s. So is it just that I was not paying attention, or has something changed? <laughs> no, I, I think that's a common sentiment for a lot of individuals that, I mean, really before the year 2000 or thereabouts, so if you grew up in the, say, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s even, you probably did not hear about the things that you listed in that tweet. So I think that's largely accurate. And, you know, generally speaking, there's two reasons why we've seen these increases. One is that there has been a large in, in improvement and evolution of our ability to diagnose these various allergic diseases and the other ones like autism spectrum and ADHD. But then the other thing is, you know, some pretty drastic behavioral changes, family changes, cultural changes, and environmental changes that have made younger people more susceptible to, for example, things like allergies. Did these things then exist back then or are they new? I, largely speaking, if you get into the conversation about autism spectrum, it's a little bit different than ADHD and it's a little bit different than the allergy part. So the allergy stuff for sure has increased. There is, there is literature to support that. There is the well-known hygiene hypothesis, right. meaning that uh, you know, adults or children, for example, that grew up in the 50s and 60s and 70s you know, were much more inclined to play in dirt and the playgrounds and a little bit more free and Whereas the children growing up in the last, like, say, 10 to 15 years were much more protected, much less likely to be exposed to all these different microorganisms and bacteria and different allergens. And as a result, the lack of exposure increases the risk of developing a, an allergy, whereas in the past, all the exposure was very protective. You know, and, and when you mentioned the um, autism I, I mean, certainly everybody today, I think, knows somebody who's autistic or is connected to someone who is related to someone who's, I mean, it's, it's, it's there, it's out there. Maybe it was the same once upon a time we just acknowledge, I mean, there, there if I look back now, there are a couple of kids that were in school that at the time, and I know this is probably considered offensive now, but they were just different. They were just, you know, may even be a little bit, you know, strange they may have had autism, we just didn't know it back then. Yeah, autism, the autism spectrum disorder is a little bit trickier. Um, it is very likely that many individuals who were autistic at the time went under the radar and never received proper assessment or diagnostics. Part of the trouble with the diagnosis of the autism spectrum disorder is that it's largely based on the story and the behaviors and some of the social characteristics of the individual child. So there's not one particular test that you can do to either prove or disprove whether or not a child has autism. So a lot of it is based on the story. And then what you'll see, and it's actually interesting because there's a very interesting overlap between autistic behavior, ADHD behavior, and as well as what we would otherwise consider, quote, normal behavior, right? So you might have an individual that was a little bit more recluse, a little bit socially awkward, a little bit more introverted, that could have behaviors consistent with autism, but isn't necessarily 
autistic as per the criteria. So there was a lot of overlap and the diagnostic tools weren't necessarily as clear back then. So this tweet, and again, I mean, it's, it's just an interesting discussion point, but this tweet says, I was in elementary school in the 70s. So we're talking 50 years ago now, 40 years ago, 50 years ago now. Let's say someone is retweeting this 40 years down the road from now. Is it automatic that someone will say the same thing, but it'll be all different stuff just because of, you know, times change and we, we cure certain things or we have medication for certain things or we're exposed to certain things. And so we get over it. Would it be a reasonable expectation that in 40 to 50 years, this entire list will be other things we've never heard of today? Yeah, that's, that's, that's actually a pretty good thought. a good question. I would say probably yes. I think there's a lot of reasonable expectation that we will see diseases or problems or, you know, like different behaviors that we don't necessarily see today. The other thing, like in, what's really relevant to a lot of people right now is that, you know, people have recently been through COVID and, and lockdowns and isolation periods and all sorts of things. And so for children and, and babies, children and younger individuals who grew up or were born into that time period of two to three years, we might see a legacy effect where down the road you see certain behaviors or changes that otherwise were never um, uh, you know, seen or observed. So I, th- that's, actually, that's actually a very interesting question. Almost like what do you think the anticipated differences will be in, say, 20, 30, 40 years from now versus like this list that you're seeing today versus a list, uh, you know, say 30 years ago, if there ever was one. So that, that uh, yeah, I think that you probably will see different things. One other thing, and it, it goes back to the one, and again, going through this list, no one was bouncing off the walls from ADD or ADHD. I, I, I think back in the day, we just called it hyperactivity, but maybe one of the differences was that there was a, I would assume, a different expectation of behavior in class. If, if back in the 70s, you were, you were expected to, if the teacher told you to sit down and just sit still, there was no, well, I have a condition excuse or explanation. You just were told to do that or you would go to the principal's office. So, so maybe it's not even, maybe it's just a cultural thing in some cases as well. Yeah, so... Very interesting. I, I think ADHD is a true biochemical and neurological change for a child. So I think it is a bona fide medical issue. But there's two things that I would say. So the, the first is that the electronic immersion in today's day and age is drastically different. Never mind 40 years ago, is drastically different than 10 years ago and for sure 20 years ago. So electronics have, have greatly changed the attention and activity level of children in probably a a not so good way. And then the other thing too, which you said, which I agree with, is the cultural differences were pretty stark. So for example, at one point it was not uncommon to like physically restrain or hit children in school, say like in the 60s, whereas now that's absolutely unacceptable. And then there was a lot more fear-based sort of teaching and rules and I think that shifted a lot of the behavior in school when you use those types of methods, right? Just as a, a simple example. But even in the 80s and 90s, the, the, the teaching, I think, was a lot stricter than perhaps it is now. And that's for a variety of reasons, too. Well, yeah. And as I say, I mean, I, I don't disagree. And I don't want to make it sound like I was suggesting ADHD doesn't exist. I believe, like you, I believe it does exist. Uh, but I think that back then, you would be told, I don't care what your explanation is, sit still or I'll send you to the principal's office. So it was just, 
you know, and, and now, you know, the kid probably has come to school with a doctor's note or an explanation that they have this. And so the teacher is now going to accommodate or adjust in a different way than once upon a time. Yeah. I, I mean, we, we, we've seen that sort of evolution with a lot of, even the way concussions are treated yes, now, yes. you know, many things are probably not serious concussions, but there's these long concussion protocols that go home to the parents and to the teachers and the doctors that have to be filled out. And then some concussions are really indeed serious. So for sure, the, the sort of um, authority that's in charge, the teaching, all of that will play a major effect. Dr. Jason Perfetto, Director of Family Medicine, Chair of Clinical Skills and Doctor Admissions at McMaster. Always love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you so much. Have a great night. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Many people, if they go into their attic or their basement, and after this, these next few minutes, many of you, I'm guessing, will go into your basement or your attic and start poking around. Many of you might have some kind of sports treasure. You you might have old hockey cards or a, a, who knows, a jersey from someone or whatever. Some of you might have, maybe not even in your attic or your cellar. It might be up on a wall somewhere. Well, there is a story that has been told now for the past couple of days that is getting tons of attention. And this is, from the sounds of it, the utopia of discoveries in the attic or cellar a couple, a family, a person in Regina stumbled onto what some are saying is the gold standard of sports cards. We'll let uh, we'll let the guy who's the expert talk about this. Jason Simons is the sports card specialist and consignment director at Heritage Auctions, which is handling this. Uh, Jason, thanks for doing this yeah. today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, um, so this was a lifelong collector. He was very passionate in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, and he was buying up boxes, buying up cases of, of cards, just like people do today. And he was opening those boxes. Um, you might be, you might remember going to the five and dime or the corner store and buying up a pack of cards. And he was a little more passionate. He was buying up a couple cases at a time um, each year to build sets. He would just bring them home, sit down, open them all up and build some sets. And what he uh, amassed was this large collection that lots of it went forgotten so he was going through it this uh this past couple months and he found a 1979 opg wayne gretzky rookie year wax case so this isn't just one pack this isn't one box this is a 16 box case of 1979 opg cards it's uh it's really the holy grail of hockey cards and not just untouched because you could have a pack that was not open that's untouched this is this is in the pack in the box in the case in the wrapper i mean this is this is yep. like finding king tut in his sarcophagus still right this is um as as monumental of a discovery for hockey cards as you can get so this is this is um a 16 box case and to put that into perspective the last time heritage auctions came across one of these boxes not a, a case a box the last time we so sold one of these we sold it for two hundred and ten thousand dollars usd oh. so if you're doing the math in your head you know two hundred thousand times a 16 box case that's a three million dollar find that he found essentially in his basement do we have any idea do you know at this point what that would have cost then like is this a hundred bucks that it would have cost them then or do we have any idea just just about um i think it would have cost somewhere around a hundred Fifty dollars, okay. At the time, 
maybe he got a little bit of a discount because he bought the entire case. And is the is the person who uh, found this now that brought you into this, is it the same guy or is it a, a child after he's passed on or something? So he's still around. Uh, he's he's uh, a bit older now. Um, and I've been working with him and his son. And so uh, the son has been the one saying, hey, dad, maybe it's time to start cleaning out the uh, back room here and try to see if any of these cards have any value. And so um they started to do this process and I've been working with them for a few months now on oh, what's this worth? What's that worth? And then eventually they start to get deeper and deeper into this room. And I got a text message from the sun saying, Hey, Jason, uh, we found something that I think you'll like. And it was a 1979 hmm. Opeachy case. So, so this, I, I, I thought this would have been the reason they had called you. So they had other things. What, like, what were the first things that they got uh, things of any value? Yeah. Yeah. So he um, like I said, he was pretty active in the 60s and 70s. Um, and so they had these sets. They had, you know, a uh, a complete set of 70, 79 Opeachy hockey, which, you know, just a, a set in, in OK condition can sell for a few thousand dollars. And so, you know, we started this whole conversation with, oh, a few thousand dollars here, a couple hundred dollars there. And and um, they said, well, we think we have more. And I said, OK, well, when you get the time to go through this uh, back room of yours, then let me know. And um, finally they, they made the time and, and I'm glad they did. When they found this box, I, I saw a photo of the box. And one of the things that's kind of quirky about this and maybe throws people off, it doesn't say 1979, 80, because I, I, you know, I was of the era, I was collecting cards back then. Maybe a bunch of people listening were too. I remember, exactly what they look like with the blue frame around them, but they were 1979-80. It just says 1980, which may make you think that it wasn't what it was. Right. So when he first found the case, that's exactly what he thought. He said um, that they thought it was a 1980 case. And 1980 case is still valuable. It's still something that would sell for a few hundred thousand dollars. But but what had happened was there was a little tiny hole in the uh, the top flap and through that hole you could see a little tiny uh, bit of the case and the 1980 boxes are bright blue and the 1979 boxes are white so he saw these white boxes and he started to research it a little bit and he said oh my god i think it's a 79 case and it was and so when he called you with that because he's talked to you a bunch a bunch of other about a bunch of other things when he calls you and says oh by the way <laughs> what's your response Oh, my, my, um, I was floored. Uh, you know, he, he texted me, you know, he must've been wired because he texted me this at 11 o'clock at night <laughs> and I had seen it and I didn't sleep that night because I, I texted my colleagues and said, Oh my God, get, you know, that guy in Toronto, I was or not Toronto, Regina, I was talking about, this is what he found. And they, it, it was, it was really something special because no one up to this point, no one has actually seen this outer case before they've seen boxes of it but they've never actually seen even the empty box and the empty case no one has seen one so this was really something special so what do you say to him on the phone or by text right then like don't <laughs> so, walk away from it don't touch it put on gloves yeah. like stay clear um my first text to him was oh my god um and then he said yeah no i opened up a little piece and i could see a 1980 or 1979 box and i was like don't open anymore uh, <laughs> keep it right there this is this is a uh, extremely valuable and so um and i uh, started to, to let him know exactly how much value this thing has and um and 
he was he, he nice as could be. It couldn't have happened to a nicer family. These guys are are really um, they've been a pleasure to work with, and um, it it's life changing money. Do you when you now know what it's worth? Are you on a plane out there to see this in person? Yeah. So actually, what we did was um, we flew out a um, one of our guards. So you know, heritage auctions. We've last year we sold one point eight billion dollars worth of material. Holy cow. Uh, yeah, we're we're the largest sports auction house in the world. And so when um, he had told us this, what we did is we flew literally flew out a guard to Regina to hand pick the, to pick up this case by hand and, and bring it to um, an armored shipment company to get it to Dallas where we're located. And then for me, me and my colleagues, we scheduled a time. Um, it was a few weeks later to fly up to Regina. You know, we picked the middle of winter in January naturally um, naturally (laughs) to um, go to the house and go through the rest of this room. And um, I'll tell you, we picked out another possibly another million dollars worth of material in this this house. It was incredible. More boxes and more cases, not 79 hockey, but you know, 77 baseball, 78 baseball, 79 baseball. No one's ever seen this, this quality quantity of, of of sports cards in in the box form it's it's in, it re- truly is once in a lifetime discovery all right let's get into this box for a second if they had opened the box and if they had opened the the boxes inside the box and if then some of these packages had been opened even if they had all the same cards none were damaged the entire same set was there. everything was the same except they were out of their wrapper how much does that affect the value of it tremendously um to put it into perspective so this wayne gretzky card it's it's not a tremendously rare card you know a lot of people who are listening to this probably have one in their collection it it was something that they printed and they distributed all across canada and um but to find one in perfect condition i mean perfect condition of the thousands and thousands that have been graded by PSA, which is the foremost grading company uh, out there, they've only graded two that have been perfect. And um, we actually sold one of those two two years ago, um, and we sold it for $3.75 million, Hmm. um, which is a a tremendous amount. But whoever's buying this case, don't go ripping it open, expecting a bunch of PSA 10 Gretzky's in it, because chances are you might not pull one. Um, you know, there might be off center, there might be print dots or errant ink or just other defects that were common back in the day. And, and just to, to highlight that, I look, I was looking on your website earlier before we talked, you have a PSA mint nine card that's on the website right now. So it's just slightly by the most minute amount, less than perfect. And you just mentioned three point something million for perfect. This one is only, I mean, only, but 105,000, a lot of money, but still way off of the three point something million. It's incredible. Yeah. So the chances that when you buy this box, so, okay. So, so this box is going to go up for, it is for auction right now. Mm -hmm. The person who buys it, are they going to open it? To find out if there's a Gretzky card in there? What would you say to them? I, I would say, you know, there's some people who, who buy this stuff to open. Um, I would imagine whoever's buying this is not going to open it though. Um, but there, there, it's very possible the person who purchases this box, this case will ultimately sell some of the individual boxes that are inside. Someone will pay a real premium to have a box from this case. And 
if that's what happens, if these 16 boxes end up entering circulation, then chances are some of these boxes are going to be opened. So really, there's there's two types of people who are going to purchase this. There's going to be someone who purchases it and keeps it as a case and keeps it just like any artwork or any other any other collectible and they they appreciate it and let it um, let it just sit in their collection or someone's going to buy it and break it up. They're going to take these boxes, maybe sell a couple so they can recoup some of their the three million dollars they just spent. And if that's what happens, then chances are someone's going to go and open a couple of these boxes. How how is your self control in this regard? If you were the guy who ended up with this, because on the one hand you go, if I don't open it, there's the great mystery, and I can continue maybe to it'll it'll build in value for later. But I could also open it and find five Wayne Gretzky rookie cards out of all this, and three of them could be perfect for all I know. You could make triple your money. I mean, I I, I don't know that I would have the self control not to do it. You know, it's uh, easy for me because these aren't my items. So it's easy for me not to touch them. But <laughs> but I'm a collector. And, and when I come across these boxes, you know, I still buy boxes today. And uh, they don't they don't last long in my house. <laughs> I, I can just, tell you that much. <laughs> I just like who would buy something like this? I mean, obviously someone with money. But is this going to do you expect because you, you've got history with this. Now, you probably have a good idea who who the people are who mm -hmm. make purchases. Like, like there are people who will purchase um a sweater for example because it's something that from their childhood they've got the money and it means something to them Th this is more of an investment right as opposed to a fan you know it's a little bit of both um you don't spend three million dollars on hockey cards if you're not a fan right um you know for for these sports collectors even the ones that spend this type of money yeah they they are fairly well to do but they're also you know geeks they they like to collect baseball cards they like to collect hockey cards and football cards they they truly enjoy this material um i know some of the people who who will possibly bid on this and and win it and those people are all the same they're they're collectors and some of them might break it up some of them might keep it as is but at the heart of it the person who's winning this is a collector yeah it's just it's such a crazy thing to think about that you've got the mona lisa in your attic and it's wrapped in cardboard and you're going to buy it and never take the cardboard off because it would reduce the value. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a, yeah. I get it, but it's crazy. Oh, it's, it's otherworldly. Um, when you're, when you're talking about, when you're talking about something like this, it, it really is something, something truly, <laughs> truly mind boggling uh, to put into perspective. Actually the previous record for highest price, ever spent on an unopened item was a 1986 Fleer case. It was a uh, Michael Jordan's rookie year. All and right. that was Makes one sense. point. Yep. And that was $1.8 million, uh, maybe three years ago. So this is, this is approaching that right now. It's at, I think 1.6. This is going to surpass that dramatically. This is going to be probably in the 2.5, $3 million range, but that case that was bought for $3 million about, or $1.8 million about three years ago, that case is still intact. The person who bought that case never opened it. They never uh, resold any of the boxes. It's still in its original form. Well, when you consider there are, if the math is right that I'm reading, uh, 7,680 cards total that will be in this. And mm -hmm. that means there were, um, what, 16 teams in the NHL at that time. I mean, there's probably, I mean, by statistically, there's probably 10 Wayne Gretzky rookie cards in there, give or take. So, 
It should be closer to uh, 25-ish. Oh, 25. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. As I say, it's amazing. It's, it's, I just wonder, as I said right off the top, I wonder how many people have heard this story and have raced to find, I know I've got some hockey cards in this house somewhere. I know I do. I know I do. And, you know, yeah, it is. uh, It is. Well, it is. It's a great story. Uh, Last thing, the idea of, value of this and this is a little bit uh, maybe a little gloomy so it, it sounds kind of morose but will this value spike when Wayne Gretzky someday many hopefully many years down does this spike when he dies or does as time goes on and the people who were alive to watch Wayne Gretzky and appreciate him are not as there's not as many of them does the value stagnate or go down well um the value of unopened material has has historically increased in value at least this this vintage premium unopened material and that's not because the players are dying and it's not because of uh you know collectors coming into more wealth which is true but it's also because people open it um so if this box gets if this case gets opened and some of those boxes get opened then instead of having 16 pristine boxes out there the supply can drop to 14 or to 12 or to 10 or, or, or whatever. So as collectors who cannot stand the thought of a perfect Wayne Gretzky card, as the collectors <laughs> look at their box that's sitting in their, on their shelf and, and they, their, their, uh, their uh, thoughts get the better of them and they go and rip that open. That just makes all the other boxes more valuable. To yeah, there you else. go. Uh, That is Jason Simons. He is the sports card specialist and consignment director at Heritage Auctions. Go look up the Heritage Auctions website, by the way. It is, uh, there's a lot of cool stuff on there. Uh, Probably you won't be able to afford anything if you're like me, but at least you can go and look and live vicariously and, uh, and just imagine. Uh, Jason, thanks so much for doing this great story. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having me. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.